Welcome to the Business Deep Dive produced by WKXL. And welcome, especially if you're listening to us on podcasts through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google, or Stitcher. Really glad you're joining us. And do us a favor, subscribe, and even more so rate and review us in the app. If you would, it really helps us out. And while you're at it, you should check out Motley Fool Money, the number one stock and investing radio show in America, also available as a podcast. And the host of that outstanding show is Chris Hill, who joins us here today. Chris, welcome back. Always good to be here, Matt. Thanks for having me. It is always outstanding to have you. Um, And again, listeners, please check out Chris's podcast. Uh, Hundreds of thousands of listeners literally do every week, and it is a fantastic listen. And I'm in kind of a good mood. I'm in a good mood because you, Chris Hill, shared a statistic with me that I I was rather impressed with. You told me that the run-up in the stock market, the post-election rise in the stock market for Joe Biden is the biggest ever. What is up with that? Why are we seeing that? So it's interesting. These are stats going back to the 1950s. And as you said, it's a very simple bit of math. It's essentially from election day to inauguration day, what has the S&P 500 done? Going back to Dwight D. Eisenhower. And as you said, uh, with the election of Joe Biden from election day uh, back in November to uh, leading into the inauguration day, the S&P 500 up nearly 12%. So there are a few reasons for that, I think. Um, I I will hasten to point out, however, that sort of in the top half of um, presidents and president-elects, going back to Dwight Eisenhower, Donald Trump uh, saw, uh, we saw a rise in the stock market of more than 6% from election day 2016 to when he took office in uh, January of 2017. Uh, But Joe Biden, uh, since his election, we've seen nearly double that rise. I think there are a few things going on there. Um, One is, uh, as I've said a few times on your show, Matt, the stock market is always looking forward. Even though we see stocks move every quarter on companies' quarterly earnings report, Uh, what we often see is whatever forward-looking guidance a company gives will often outweigh the results that they just reported for the previous three months. The stock market and investors are always looking forward. And I think with the election of Joe Biden, uh, for whatever folks think of him politically, collectively, the stock market was thinking in a couple of broad ways. One had to do with uh, the rollout of the COVID-19 vaccine and the belief that um, this will be handled more efficiently um, and the vaccine will get into more arms more quickly under a Biden administration than we've seen over the last couple of months under the Trump administration. Um, Another is something that we will uh, see very quickly under the new Congress, and that is the potential for a stimulus bill. Um, Joe Biden has talked openly about a couple of different versions of that, uh, meaning we could see literally a couple of different bills, one in the very near term, another sort of further down the line. Um, But uh, one way or another, uh, it is the very real expectation that the hundreds of billions, if not somewhere approaching $2 trillion worth of stimulus, 
is going to get injected into the U.S. economy. Uh, the ripple effects for what that means for consumers in terms of the potential for direct checks, what that means for small businesses in terms of loans, uh, what that means in terms of uh, infrastructure programs. You and I have talked about that in the past. Um, no matter how you slice it, um, the expectation from Wall Street is we're going to see a lot of money injected into the economy. And the third part of all this, Matt, is interest rates. Um, there is not a single person on Wall Street who expects that interest rates are going to rise dramatically anytime in 2021. So you put all three of those things together. Um, it's not overly surprising that the market is up uh, between election day and Joe Biden's inauguration. Um, and because of particularly those last two things, low interest rates, um, more stimulus coming, even though the market continues to hit new highs seemingly every other day, uh, for those who are not yet invested in the stock market, I think it's still a great time to get in. Well, that's the point that I wanted to uh, ask you about, push you on a little bit even, because it does seem, and look, you know, I just want to point out, obviously, this is not a partisan politics show. And, you know, you pointed out that Donald Trump also had a fairly successful run up in the stock market uh, in that period between Election Day 2016 and when he was inaugurated in 2017. Although Biden's, uh, for those who are on the Democratic side of the ledger, uh, they'll take some satisfaction from the fact that Biden's run up was about double Trump's. But it's this question of expectations. Given the amount of run-up, this almost 12% increase over the last couple of months, and as you say, driven by expectations of what we are going to see, more effectiveness in deployment of vaccination, um, more effective or, or perhaps just more stimulus, and a low interest rate environment, to what extent is the market already pricing those elements in, and how much room to grow do you really think there is? I think there's plenty of room for the market in general to grow, but in terms of stuff being priced in, I think that's something we're going to see on a company by company basis. I think businesses that are large and stable and have a long track record of cranking out profits, uh, Microsoft, just to pick one, um, and I don't own shares of Microsoft, but, um, but that is a business that whatever the valuation on the stock um, that's a business that continues to uh, crank out profits. Uh, I think the future continues to be very bright for Microsoft. I do think that there are some companies that are younger, not as profitable, in some cases still unprofitable, that have been granted um, uh, a lot of optimism over the past 12 months. I mean, we've seen unprofitable cloud computing businesses where the stock price has tripled and quadrupled in the past year. Um, I would be surprised if we saw that similar results for those stocks over the next 12 months that we saw of the last uh, 12 months, because again, at some point, these businesses have to show they can uh, turn a profit. Um, something came out uh, late last week. Um, uh, one of the Wall Street analysts for uh, City came out with um, uh, an analyst note about Spotify, um, basically uh, calling out Spotify as a business that um, is richly valued in terms of the stock. And um, they were, uh, the folks at City were essentially cutting back their rating on Spotify because they said, 
look, this is a business that in 2020 spent hundreds of millions of dollars on podcasts, buying podcast companies and platforms. And we have not yet seen evidence that that is going to lead to materially more money for in the case of Spotify. Again, I'm just talking about one Wall Street analyst firm talking about one company, but I think it is indicative of, of your question, Matt, where we're absolutely going to see some companies where the stocks have had a great run-up, where people on Wall Street say, no, nah, I'm not giving you the benefit of the doubt anymore. I was a year ago. I'm not anymore, in part because your stock has tripled in the past 12 months. And so more is expected of you. And until you prove it, uh, I'm not buying any more shares. And for all our listeners tuning in over Spotify, definitely still encourage you to go ahead and <laughs> rate and, and subscribe and uh, and yes. let all our friends know through that platform, not necessarily a, a, a mark against Spotify, but it does sound overall like what you're saying is, look, you see a constructive environment overall. That seems to be the signal, the read that the market is is telling us there is a, they're anticipating a rising tide to lift all boats with the potential that some of those boats may have already seen their ship come in. I'm really extending this metaphor a little too far and may end up crashing on uh, the shore along the way over the next year. That's as nautical as I'm going to get, but is, is that pretty much the, the sum up on that? Absolutely. And a friend of mine, a, a colleague at The Motley Fool for the past 20 years um, says from time to time, and this is sort of his approach to investing, he is someone who has a long-term focus. And yet, as he says from time to time, every stock I own is for sale at a certain price. You know, if you're, if you're going to pay me 10 times what it's currently worth, I'm going to sell you that stock. And the flip side of that is true. And it gets to the question that you had, which is essentially, look, there are a lot of great companies out there. There are companies out there with, with bright futures. That does not mean you should buy all of them, regardless of what the price is at. Uh, the stock market as a whole, uh, I am very bullish on. That doesn't mean I'm very bullish on every single stock that makes up the market. As much as I love the discussion of the link between government, public policy, interest rates, Fed policy, and business and investing, I think we'll have to turn the page to another topic, which also happens to be one of my favorite pop topics. You and I are both movie guys. And one thing that we've seen in the last week or so is more projected delays on new content from Hollywood. How should we read that? I think um, both as movie fans um, and as people who might think about owning shares of companies that produce movies and television, I think we should be a little bit concerned. Uh, a year ago, let's call it 10 months ago, uh, you go back to spring of 2020 when movie theaters across the country are closed and uh, production shuts down, we see big tick, you know, those big tentpole movies, Black Widow, Wonder Woman 1984, that sort of thing. Uh, the, the latest James Bond movie, we saw studios across the board saying, hey, we're pushing this out till the end of the year. And then we get to the end of 2020 and they say, we're pushing it into 2021. Or in the case of Wonder Woman, we're going to push it to a streaming service. But one thing that all of those studios said all the way uh, through 2020, Matt, was don't worry, we've got stuff in the pipeline. We have, when the vaccine is out, 
when we are rid of COVID-19, when the pandemic is over and movie theaters open back up in 2021, don't worry, we've got stuff in the pipeline to keep those theaters full of new movies. Well, now we're starting to see signs that because we still have the overwhelming majority of movie theaters closed, um, the ones that are open are open to limited capacity um, and productions continue to be shut down. Um, I think that over the next three to six months, unless we see uh, a significant number of vaccinations on the rise and clear signs that America's businesses, including the entertainment businesses, are going to be opening up again. I think there are real concerns about what the pipeline is going to be like for 2022. Because again, you go back six to 10 months, Netflix, all the movie studios, they're like, no, it's okay. We've got stuff in the pipeline. We're, we're, we're just putting the finishing touches. Principal shooting is done. We're just adding the special effects. We don't need to get together to do that. Everyone can do that from their home. And that's all true. But think about what we're seeing now where they haven't begun principal shooting on a lot of movies that they had hoped to start by now. Um, same for television. So uh, I think that um, the major streaming services are going to be looking to um, maybe um, do some more promotion of their back catalog. Um, uh, older shows might get, um, um, you know, uh, a higher price tag than they would have gotten otherwise, because if there aren't new television shows and new movies ready to go in the second half of 2021, um, then I think Hollywood is going to have a problem on their hands. It's not going to be a long-term problem, um, but it, it, it is going to get a squeeze. And I think in terms of the stocks, it wouldn't surprise me if we saw a little bit of a sell-off at some point. To what extent is the flip side also true? Now, this may seem like a trite uh, observation, but one of the data points that we don't really have in scientific terms is the degree to which the vaccine is protective against spread. We just haven't, we know that it's protective against actually coming down with the symptoms of COVID um, and getting sick. What we don't really have a firm beat on yet is if you've gotten the vaccine, to what extent can you continue to spread COVID? And that of course means that the guidance right now is after you've gotten your shots, if you're one of those lucky Americans, you still need to be careful congregating with large groups. And of course that gets to both the production side that you're referring to here and of course, the consumption side of new movies, new media, um, in terms of opening up for the theater experience. So I guess my question is, to what degree, if we do get a bead on that kind of scientific data, and we do begin to get a sense that yes, the vaccine is protective, and once you've got it, you can go out and congregate and kind of resume normal life, would you expect, pun intended here, that to be a, a shot in the arm for the sector? I think it would be. Uh, and I think uh, it's important to make the distinction between the production side of the entertainment business and the consumption side. Um, we've seen in the case of Netflix and, and Disney Plus uh, and even Peacock, the streaming service from NBC and Comcast, uh, you know, they, they've really um, uh, done well over the past 12 months for all of the obvious reasons. Uh, but they really do depend in large part on new content. So um, if we see the types of results you're talking about, um, that's good across the board. 
but I think that the, the production side needs to ramp back up before we can start to see um, that wonderful ripple effect of new content across streaming services and movie theaters. Well, I guess in the meantime, uh, viewers can be left to endlessly dissect what dates mean and wallpaper means on WandaVision. So moving on to another topic, this one, you know what? I didn't even want to kind of read too much into this. You emailed me before the show and you you just teased the idea that Coke and Pepsi have teamed up. That's such a delicious tease. I didn't want to, oh boy, I'm making a lot of puns today. I just didn't want to delve any further into that. I'll let you explain that one. Coke and Pepsi have teamed up, question mark. Coke and Pepsi have teamed up to sit out of the Super Bowl in terms oh. of advertising. And I find this to be a, a fascinating and very telling story. Now, yes, Pepsi is still the sponsor of the halftime show uh, for the Super Bowl, but the fact that both Coca-Cola and Pepsi are sitting out the advertising um, I think there are a few fascinating things to this. One is, I think it's a sign of just how challenged both of those ubiquitous businesses have been over the past year. Um, you know, you can go to the grocery store and pick up uh, all the Coke and Pepsi products you want. When you look at the business of Coca-Cola and Pepsi, uh, they break out their business into several segments. One of them is essentially called the away from home segment. The away from home segment is sporting venues, entertainment venues, restaurants. This is a hugely profitable part of Coke and Pepsi's business. So just because you can get Coke and Pepsi at any convenience store or grocery store doesn't mean those businesses have been doing well. They have really suffered because they make so much more money on a profit basis from stadiums, arenas, restaurants, um, McDonald's, Burger King, all of these places. Uh, so we've talked before, Matt, about um, one of the things that CEOs need to be good at, regardless of what business they're running, they need to be good at capital allocation. They need to be good, or at least have people on their team who are good at the decisions they make around spending money. Do we spend money buying back our stock? Do we spend money investing in new equipment? Do we spend money on advertising and marketing? And in the case of Coke and Pepsi, both of these companies have very quickly reached the decision. In the grand scheme of an annual marketing budget, it's not a huge drop in the bucket, but it's enough of a drop in the bucket. I mean, these are companies that put aside the halftime show just in terms of advertising. Coca-Cola spent $10 million on the Super Bowl last year. I know it's a huge company, but that's not nothing. $10 million is still $10 million, even if you're Coca-Cola. So the fact that these companies are not advertising on the Super Bowl makes me wonder a couple of things. Uh, first and foremost, who else is going to be sitting out? Second, um, what does this mean for CBS, who has the Super Bowl this year. Super Bowl, as of this conversation, man, they haven't sold out the Super Bowl. If, if you've got a couple million dollars burning a hole in your pocket, CBS would love to talk to you about buying some ad, on the, ad time on the Super Bowl because they haven't sold it out. And I know the game isn't for a little while, but this time last year, they were sold out. Uh, so um, I, I think that, it, again, it goes back to the pandemic and 
this is the challenge for businesses like Coke and Pepsi. Um, uh, I think we're going to see more businesses um, keep a closer watch on their advertising budget across the board, not just for big events like the Super Bowl, um, because that's something they can control. Um, uh, you know, the, the, the biggest thing uh, we saw in 2020 was the travel industry and all of the travel related industries like hotels and cruise ships, um, huge pullback on their advertising. Um, and, and the ripple effect um, isn't just for them, it's for businesses like Google and Facebook, which are advertising businesses. Wow, that is the kind of deeper cut wrinkle that I don't think you get uh, just just anywhere, either in podcast or, or any other type of analysis. Not only something I hadn't thought of, the amount of the business proposition for Coke and Pepsi that comes out of those high margin uh, uh, uh outlets, you know, restaurants and stadiums, but also the answer to what to do with the extra couple million dollars I have lying around, which I was definitely looking for a solution for that. All right. Last question to lob at you. To what extent do you think that this pullback is reflective of just the immediate economic conditions when it comes to advertising the Super Bowl? How much of it goes to sort of the longer term trend of the, the market space for broadcast advertising and the diminishing share of the advertising dollar that that seems to be eating up. I think that uh, obviously the pandemic is knock on wood, a short-term problem. I think uh, what you just raised is the longer term problem. I mean, um, the, net, the traditional networks uh, that have the Super Bowl are used to every year an increasing amount of money for that 30 second of ad time. Um, I don't know what, uh, you know, they're planning on for 2022 and beyond in terms of charging for that 30 seconds. Um, but I think they're going to have to figure out ways if they want that amount to keep going up, the networks are going to have to figure out what else they can promise advertisers in terms of guarantees of audience, um, whether it's online or offline, they got to make sure they can do that. Otherwise there's no way to justify an increasing amount of money for that 30 seconds of ad time on the Super Bowl. Awesome insights, as always, from Chris Hill, host of Motley Fool Money, the number one stock and investing radio show in America. If you're listening to, to this, you should listen to that. Chris Hill, thanks for being with us. Always great talking to you, Matt. Thanks. Welcome to Your Money, produced by WKXL. And you may be listening to us on Apple Podcasts, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts. We're glad you're joining us. And we've got Mike Morton of Morton Financial Advice to walk us through how to handle your money. Mike, welcome. Thanks, Matt. Thanks for having me. Well, very glad to have you back. We thought we were talking about this before we uh, started recording this, and we thought maybe we should break things down uh, to the to sort of the starting point. We wanted to talk today about portfolio allocation. Now, the, the, these are some Big words for, I think, a pretty simple concept. So let's start off, Mike, what does portfolio allocation even mean? And why is it important to think about for investors? Yeah, thanks, Matt. I think this is a really, really important topic. Uh, and so definitely we're going to dive into a little bit of jargon. We'll try to break it down as we go. I'll keep, Matt will keep me honest uh, whenever I'm spitting out some financial terms uh, during this segment. Uh, we'll make sure we're defining those. So your portfolio allocation, what you think about is all, when I say the word portfolio, 
it's all your accounts total together. So you have some savings accounts, checking accounts, maybe brokerage accounts, retirement accounts, right? You've got five or six different things. If you're married, you double that. You got 10 different things. So a portfolio is the entire uh, bucket, all of those put together in one pie chart. All right. So imagine a pie chart of all those accounts and what you own in each of those accounts. You might have some cash. You might have some stocks. You might have some mutual funds. You might have some bonds. Okay. So now we can say we can assign colors to each of these or slices within that total pie of what is in each account. That is your portfolio. And the question is, all right, great. Why is that important? Why should I care, you know, across all these different accounts? My retirement account, I got that dialed in. You know, why do I have to total all these different accounts? <clears throat> and the reason is because it is the number one driver of your return. What you're invested in across all those different accounts is the number one driver of what the return is going to be for your portfolio. And obviously that's very important to investors. You want to get a return on your money so that you can do more things in the future. All right. So let me make sure I'm following this. So your portfolio is the slices of pie in your pie. The allocation, when you say portfolio allocation, is how big each of those slices is. And your goal, the name of the game is, as George W. Bush famously once said, to make the pie higher. You want to increase the size of the pie and you want to prevent anyone from sneaking up and taking bites out of your pie. Is, is that close to right? Yeah, that's right. You definitely, uh, you, the bites out of your pie could be the, the taxes, right? That come into uh, the government coming in and taking bites out of your pie, depending on what it's invested in. Um, but that's exactly right. We want to grow, you know, that pie over time and use it for your own goals. And that could be different for everybody. Okay. But the allocation, you're exactly right, is what you're invested in kind of the slices of that pie <clears throat> across those different accounts. So before I start talking about that, let's, let's break it down to some blocking and tackling some, yes, please. some basics. All right. So the first thing at the, at the highest level across this pie are stocks and bonds, right? And these are two different, two different things that we can invest our money in, we can put our money in. And of course, there's cash as well. So I should say that stocks, bonds, cash might be the three, three biggest components. Uh, so the stocks, when I'm saying stocks or equities, that is investing in a company. That's somebody started a company or it's a public company and you give them a $10,000 and you own a piece of that company. So hopefully the company does well, it gets bigger, hires employees, gets more profits and you own a piece of that. You get a piece of the profits. You could sell it you know, to someone else down the road, but you own a, a piece of that company. In a contrast, a bond is an IOU, all right? So I lend money to somebody. I give somebody $10,000, I lend it to you at 2% interest over a year or 10 years, and you're going to pay me back plus that interest and I get my money back. All right. So that's the difference between a stock and a bond. I see. So with a bond, you're, you're handing out some money, you buy a bond. So, you know, you, 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 you pay 30 bucks today, but in X number of years, you're going to get 50 bucks back. That's right. Yeah, exactly. Got it. All right. So, okay. I think, I think I get the, the difference there. So um, what should I invest in? How, do, <laughs> how does one decide? So where do we go? Yeah. There's a couple, there's still a couple of different levels we had to get to, but how do we decide, you know, okay, great. I can, I can put my $5,000 into, into a stock. I can put my $5,000 into a bond. You know, what should I choose? Well, the nice thing is you don't have to do all of one or the other, right? You don't, you know, you could split it up. It's very easy to split these things up now. You could do a little bit here, a little bit there. So you don't have to, you know, go all in on one side or the other. And then of course, the nice thing is that these are what are called non-correlated assets, right? Stocks, 
bonds and cash. When one is going up, stock market's doing well. Uh, you know, even given all the turmoil of last year, the stock market actually went up pretty significantly. Um, when that happens, maybe bonds don't go up as much. And the other way could be true too. Stock market tanks, you know, we had the big dip last March and stocks really took a hit. Bonds didn't really move that much. Um, and so that's why you want, you do want to own some of both because they move different directions at different rates. So, I mean, would it be okay for me to just say, great, grab some of column A, grab some of column B, uh, I'm good to go. Some stocks some bonds, pretty much it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a good starting point is you definitely want to think about having some of both. And it really depends. And we'll talk about this depends on where you are in the life cycle of your career and your family and other questions like that. But once we've gotten stocks and bonds within each of those, it gets more complicated. There are subclasses. All right. And so within stocks, you could invest in large companies or small companies. You could invest in U.S. companies or international companies. Okay, within bonds, you can invest in the governments, uh, U.S. government, European government issued bonds to, to um, fund their projects, or you can invest in companies' bonds. Companies need to raise money. They, don't, uh, they often issue bonds. And so you can say, oh, great, I'll, I'll lend Amazon 10,000 bucks and they'll pay me back you know, uh, 13,000 bucks in a couple of years. So you have corporate bonds as well as uh, U.S. government bonds or other government bonds. So in each of these, there are sub asset classes. Okay. And again, we want to roll those up to the big pie uh, picture, but you know, once you get to the stocks and bonds, I might be 50, 50, just for argument's sake, then within each of those, you might also have some sub classes. I see. So you're, do you want to spread out among different types of classes? Do you, do you want to concentrate in, in one area? Yeah. So there's different approaches to investing. Some people do like to concentrate in one area. They think they have some insight into, you know, this area might do really well in the next year or two. And so I'm going to put more of my money into the U.S. stock market. Uh, or when we think stocks are overpriced, let me, you know, get out of that a little bit more into bonds. So you can concentrate. However, I would say in general, you want to really diversify across all of these asset classes. Own a little bit of everything because that is the only free lunch is the diversification, all right? When we're invested all in one thing, like Enron stock, that could go to zero, <laughs> you know? Um, and so you wanna be very careful when you're getting highly concentrated into a particular area. So in general, we wanna spread everything out and get that diversification. I see, so the more concentrated you are, in some ways, the more risk you're taking on, the more diversified you are, in some ways, you're spread. Let me try. Let me try another metaphor on you. We've tried pies. Um, let's try horse racing. It sounds like part of what you're saying is that your investing is a little bit like betting on a horse race. And when you diversify, you get to put your money on more than one horse at a time. The more horses you've got some money on, the better chance that one of them is going to come in. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and in fact, when you look at the returns, we haven't talked about it too much yet, but the returns of these different asset classes, as we mentioned earlier, do different things. Sometimes stocks go up and bonds stay flat. Um, sometimes stocks go down. Uh, and sometimes US does really well. Sometimes international does really well. So across all these different classes, you don't know which horse you know, is going to win. Um, so by spreading it out, you always have some disappointment. <laughs> oh, geez, these ones didn't come in at all, um, but you always have good gains. Uh, and so you're, you're spreading out your risk and you're getting sort of diversified reward. And you're ending up ahead of the game in the long run. So 
how do you make those decisions? How do you, how do you choose which horses you're, you're going to put more on, less on, uh, skip altogether? Right, exactly. So you can, na- nowadays it's pretty easy, which is great because we have mutual funds and exchange traded funds where you can invest in the entire U.S. stock market with just a hundred bucks um, and get, you know, thousands of companies. And so uh, the financial industry has really changed over the last couple of decades such that it's easy and cheap to invest in these things and get the diversification. So you can start really simply and look at that entire portfolio and say, I'll invest in the U.S. stock market, the international stock market, and the global bond market. And when I say global bond markets, you know, all bonds across kind of U.S. and international. So you could literally have three investments within your portfolio, your retirement accounts, your brokerage accounts, and just keep it very simple and just have those three. And that's a great starting point. In some ways, it sounds to me and my much less educated ears, like you're making it seem like the job of investing has gotten a little bit easier as these kinds of new products have been offered by financial services companies. But in a way, it also sounds like these are some incredibly complicated things. They can have many different pieces inside them. There are many different products offered by different financial institutions. And as you said before, they can have different mixes of international U.S. stocks, bonds, uh, commodity. We haven't even gotten into that. So is that where you come in in helping clients and working with people to make those kinds of decisions? Yeah, absolutely. So that's one of the things that is a challenge. You could think you're diversified. Hey, in my retirement account, I picked these three different funds. And um, in this, in my wife's retirement account, she's got these three different funds. We're diversified. We own six, eight different things. But it could turn out those things all own the U.S. large market, U.S. large companies. And so you're just invested in one asset class, even though you own six to eight you know, different funds. And so you really need to boil it, you know, pull it up to that big pie chart, back to the pie uh, analogy and see what is what you hold. And there are different technologies out there that do that from um, different uh, software packages that you can find online for a consumer. Uh, Financial advisors, of course, do this all the time, pull together multiple accounts and take a look at it from the high level so we can understand, hey, where are you more concentrated than you might want to be? And of course, one of the other complications that I've noticed in my own life is that with all of these choices that are out there, and you know, you and I had a professor. Uh, uh, for our listeners, Mike and I went to the same college. We have the same alma mater, and there is a there is a famous professor there who teaches about the psychology of choice. And he's found that the best number of choices out there is like six to ten. Any more than that. And it actually gets confusing and demoralizing. So if you go into the grocery store and you see 57 different kinds of ketchup, you're pretty bummed out. And that's sometimes the way I feel when it comes to investment choices. It's not just that there are so many choices, which is a bummer in itself. It's also that so many of them look so similar, but really when you get down into the nitty gritty details, they are not. I've discovered that I had a it's a different type of account. I had an account for trying to save for college for my kids. And it had uh, some, it, it was, it was incorporated in South Dakota for some reason. And I, I wasn't sure I understood all of the details that went with that. So, I, I mean, is that also one of the things that people need to, to watch out for is that there are some fine grain details that make differences between things that on the surface look pretty similar as like, oh, you can, you can get a big bundle of stocks with this type of thing. You can get a big bundle of bonds with this type of thing. Are they, 
are they deceptively different down below the surface? Well, unfortunately they are, but uh, at some level, does it matter to you as an investor? Some things do and some things don't. So let's take, uh, stick it on the portfolio allocation. I'll, I'll pick another uh, product called a target date fund. And so a lot of listeners will have uh, this in the mix in their retirement accounts. Target date funds, uh, you could put all your money just straight into a target date fund and it will automatically do the allocation for you based on the year of retirement. So you may have seen these, you know, target date fund 2055. Uh, and you put in your 10,000 bucks there and it's got some stocks, it's got bonds, US international, it does all that for you. So yeah, I've got one of those. Great. I love it. I, I, yeah. I, I don't want to do anything else because it does right. everything for me. That's great. It's oh, or great, is it? It's a great, it is a great product. I really like target date funds. There are some downsides, but for people that are just, um, you know, accumulating money kind of mid-career, you know, early career, mid-career, they're great. You can put your money in there month in and month out and not worry about it too much. Uh, I see. But, the, but uh, to answer your question, so if you got one of these from uh, one company versus another, you know, different companies have them, Schwab, Fidelity, Vanguard, all have these kind of target date funds. When you look under the hood, they are different. They could be off by 10 to 20% what they decide uh, how to spread out that money, how to diversify it. And does it matter, you know, that comes back to, does it matter to you as a consumer? Not really. They're, they're all going to do pretty well. I mean, I can tell you a year later, which one did better. <laughs> but going, you know, going into the year, I can't tell you which one is going to do better. And they're all designed to do, um, you know, what they're supposed to kind of lead you towards retirement. So there's a single fund, a target date fund that does the diversification for you. And I'm a big fan of those products. So speaking of how things might do a little bit better, might not do as well. So I get obviously that things move up and down at different rates at different times. So if I am looking to kind of construct a portfolio myself, how should I think about return uh, for each type of asset class or, or for the portfolio as a whole? What should I be looking for? Yeah. So this is, uh, again, back to the, the starting point, stocks versus bonds. Historically, we can look backwards and say, what have investments in companies done, you know, owning a piece of that company? And historically, they do about 10 to 11% per year on average. Now, I'll tell you a story about averages in a sec. But 10 to 11% 10 to per year on, on average, whereas bonds do about 5 to 6% per year. Now, those are nominal returns. They're not included of inflation. All right. And right now, we're in super low inflation. Uh, so no one's really thinking about it. But historically, it's been almost 4%. So you've got to take, you know, your buying power is going down by 4% a year, even if you're making 10 or 11%. So you got to take that off the top, you know, for how much purchasing power you're going to have in 10 or 20 years, all right, on inflation. But remember, these are averages and the stock market rarely hits its average. Less than 10% of the time will it actually hit that within a year. Last year, the S&P 500 was up 18 to 20%, all right, well above, you know, that 10% average. Okay, so... I, I have to call time out here and in, in, with suspicion of shenanigans, but you can set me straight. Now, I majored in economics in college. I didn't pursue a PhD because it turns out I'm not super great at math, but I can tell the difference between you said stocks about 10 to 11% return, bonds 5 to 6%. Sounds to me like stocks, you'd expect about double the return from bonds. So why do bonds at all? <laughs> exactly. That's a great question. Well, the reason is because in any uh, longer period of time, again, we're talking averages, right? So I agree with you. If you've got 100 years, great, all in on the stocks, because that's what we're looking at in terms of history and the averages is about 100 years. Um, 
But when you look at any 10 year period or even 20 year period, okay, we could be well away from those averages. I was just looking at a chart last night of the S&P 500 for 10 years from the, through the 90s. It was basically 17% a year, 17% a year compounded for 10 years. Well, then 2000 happened, 2000 to 2008, minus 3% a year. Wow. Minus 3% a year for eight years. That was the average annualized return uh, for stocks. So that's why we own bonds. There's a couple of reasons to own bonds. Uh, that's one of them, obviously, is, is the volatility. If you need cash soon, that's a reason to own cash or bonds. I'm talking in the next year or two. Obviously, you're not going to put that in stocks that can go down 50% in a year. All right. So if you need that money, that's a reason for owning cash or bonds. And then, like I just said, even within a decade, you know, um, who knows wh where these things are going. So you got to be careful and make sure you have some allocated towards that bond side of things. So it sounds like, especially if I'm getting a little bit closer to retirement, which, you know, let's face it, it with my podcasting and radio career, it's probably pretty far off. Um, that's the kind of situation where maybe I'd want a bit more in bonds, a bit less in stocks so that I don't face that kind of volatility as I approach the time that I'm going to want access to the cash. Yeah, that's exactly right. So at the high level, we could say, hey, I want to be 80% stocks or 20% bonds, or I want to be 50-50. But another great way of looking at this is when you need those dollars. So if I have $5 today that I'm going to spend next year, cash. The next 10 years, maybe bonds, okay? Because they, they tend to you know, not be nearly as volatile. If it's 20 years, you know, 10 plus years that I need that five bucks, stocks. And so that's why when you're young, if you're in your 20s and 30s, you can be 80, 90, 100% stocks because that $5 you're putting away today, you will not be using for 20 years. If it's say, in, you know, definitely in your retirement account. But as you're, you know, within five or even 10 years of retirement, that's where we often transition and say, wow, I need to be holding some more bonds because I can't have this portfolio that I'm relying on, you know, go down by 30 or 40%. One thing that I haven't heard in your explanation so far is a focus on sort of the week to week, day to day of how the stock market is doing, which, you know, as a, as a popular consumer of information, one hears a lot about that, you know, what's up, what's down, you watch Jim Cramer, you know, on CNBC, and you know, it's all about like, what's hot today. Does that have anything to do with it? Or are you really talking about a strategic approach over the long term? I almost completely ignore the noise of market commentary from day to day and week to week. Um, of course, it's, things can move very quickly. You know, we've seen that recently. So we have some good firsthand knowledge of watching that. And it's exciting to, you know, listen to the news, read the news every day, see what's going on. The market did this and that. Um, realize all those headlines are looking backwards. And so when you're reading news stories, oh, the market went up by 1% because... Well, whatever comes after that because is they're making up because that's what happened yesterday. So that's the that must be the reason where in reality, you never really know what's moving things day to day, even year to year. Uh, to be honest, you really don't know like what's driving that. And it can be, you know, let's just look at last year for a great example. What is driving a market going up 20 percent during a year of crazy pandemic? Um, but when you start looking at five, 10 and 20 years, that's where the returns of these things average out over time. Oh, good companies still making strong profits. Yes, they go up and up and up, right? Because they're performing. Um, and, and the same on the bond side, you know, they stay pretty steady based on interest rates. So 
that's why looking for the long term, this is exactly that. I would uh, always view your portfolio as a long term investment towards the goals that you want, whether they're one year, five years, or twenty years away. Sounds like the weather report. the The weather person is very good at saying, "Well, here's what happened yesterday, and here's why," but can't tell you a lot about what the weather is going to be like next month. All right, um, I'm going to leave the the last word on this to you. Any final thoughts? Anything else that listeners should really know about? Yeah, I think just what we were just talking about is really, really important. Have a plan and stick with it year in and year out. When the market tanks, don't get, don't get scared. If those dollars were for 10 years from now, it really doesn't matter. It's not going to make a difference. Stick with your plan. Have a good allocation between stocks and bonds that you can review once a year and then keep with it. Well, wise final words on that. Mike Morton of Morton Financial Advice. Thank you very much for giving us this really fascinating run through of just the basics. And boy, it sounds like there's a lot more we could discuss on all of these points that you raised. And we'll look forward to continuing to do that. This is the Your Money segment produced by WKXL. Uh, Once again, Mike Morton, thanks for being with us. You bet. My pleasure. 